This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm your host, Jonathan. Today, we hit on a major part of Christian-Muslim relations on the peninsula, an event that rivals many others that define the topic, but few include in the overall retelling of the last thousand years or so. It's a major fork in the road, and my imagination couldn't help but be pulled in the various directions that history could have taken following it. Alfonso's capturing of Toledo in the year 1085. It's incredible. Now don't worry, our protagonist for this stretch of the podcast, Rodrigo Diaz, that is El Cid, he plays a role, but today is about something larger than the largest man on the peninsula. Today's episode, episode 68, is entitled El Cid Part 2, The Fall of Toledo. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. According to the legend, The Song of El Cid, Rodrigo Diaz at this point, that is, 1083, just after the Battle of Tevar Woods, was just spinning his wheels, you could say. He would move, win a few battles, succeed in several raids, cause such a ruckus that a local local overlord would respond. Rodrigo would win against the overlord, but move on because though he could win a battle or two, he didn't have an occupation force at his disposal. If he was going to continue, he needed to push hard right at the heart of one of these centers of power and control it. Now, Rodrigo decided if King Alfonso VI was going to continue to snub him, then by the grace of God and fueled by the words of the archangel Gabriel who visited him in his dreams, this part according to legend, he would create his own destiny. And he would do it in Valencia. But we get way ahead of ourselves. At the time, Rodrigo was probably not thinking about Valencia, not specifically anyway. Now let's begin instead, again, in the year 1083, right after the Battle of Tevar Woods. There, we find ourselves in Rueda, a castle within the territory of the Taifa of Zaragoza. Well, something happened there that shifted things ever so slightly on the peninsula. Obviously not as important as Gavrilo Princip assassinating Archduke Franz Ferdinand, ultimately resulting in World War I, but it was in the same vein. Something small that shifted the landscape ever so slightly that resulted in widespread change and upheaval. It went down like this. Trouble was brewing in Zaragoza already. The governor of Rueda, a man named Albofalak, rebelled against Zaragoza's king, Al-Muqtadir, See, before this, al-Muqtadir had imprisoned al-Bufalak's brother, Yusuf, and al-Bufalak sent messages to King Alfonso for help in correcting the injustice. Well, Alfonso did what he could to ignore it as long as he could, but he also knew that he was supporting an unpopular leader in Zaragoza. So Alfonso eventually sent an army to Rueda, but not exactly in support of al-Bufalak. Well, not exactly in support of al-Muqtadir either. He put the Prince of Navarre, Ramiro, in charge of the force. It's worth noting that Ramiro was the brother of King Sancho IV of Navarre, who was the brother-in-law to none other than Garcia Odonez, Rodrigo's sworn enemy at this point. A second man accompanied Ramiro on this mission, a prominent aristocrat named Count Gonzalo Salvadores, 
who had been hanging around the wealthy halls of Christian Iberian power since Fernando I decades earlier. It was a robust military force slash delegation, to be sure. And from here, I'm going to let Richard Fletcher, author of the book The Quest for El Cid, explain what happened there. Quote, When Gonzalo and Ramiro reached Rueda, they held discussions with Yusuf, and perhaps at the latter's insistence, summoned the king himself. Alfonso came for a few days, and after discussions of which we know nothing, returned to Castile. Event, uh, evidently, he believed that Gonzalo and Ramiro were capable of handling matters on their own, and then Yusuf suddenly and unexpectedly died. Albofleck found himself in the unenviable position of one who, running a pretender, finds himself with only a corpse. He implored, he implored Alfonso to come to Rueda at once to take over the castle. Arrangements were made for Gonzalo and Ramiro to take possession of Rueda in Alfonso's name before the king himself arrived. Well, at this point, Albofleck seems to have panicked. When Gonzalo and Ramiro entered the castle under safe conduct on January 6, 1083. The garrison pelted them with stones. The Count and the Infante and many of their noble companions were killed. End quote. Yeah, weird. Some of it seems a little non sequitur, right? But either way, under safe conduct, Count Gonzalo Salvadores and Prince Ramiro of Navarre, along with their entourage of noblemen, were stoned to death at Rueda, all acting on behalf of King Alfonso VI of Castile and Leon. Fletcher continued with, quote, The treachery at Rueda was long to be remembered with horror in Christian circles. End quote. It's worth noting, by the way, that Albofalac may have gone without saying, but Albofalac was Muslim. And this just goes to show that the Christian-Muslim relationship in Iberia was a big piece to the puzzle that kicked off the First Crusade. Though the Crusades, for all intents and purposes, affected the Holy Land, yes, I know there were exceptions, which we will get to in time. Well, Iberia played a central role in that whole sequence of events, too. In fact, one could say that the goings-on in Iberia was a major factor in papal thinking, increasingly so as the 11th century wore on. Why? Because Iberia was, as far as Latin Christendom was concerned, a battleground between the two faiths, with the small exception of Sicily, that is. And this treachery at Rueda, as Fletcher calls it, was one among many circumstances that no doubt made its way into the hearts and minds across Europe and straight into Rome itself. Now, there was one man who was a bit too close to the action at Rueda and wasn't exactly on the best terms with his Christian king at the time. That's right, Rodrigo Diaz. See, Rodrigo and his men were just 40 miles from Rueda at the time of the surprise massacre. Rodrigo, having been burned by Garcia Odonez already, knew that if he didn't act at once, then who knows what kind of treachery Odonez would use against him in the wake of Gonzalo's and Ramiro's death. So, Rodrigo rode straight to Alfonso and proclaimed in no uncertain terms his innocence in the matter. Having heard nothing more of Rodrigo Diaz through the rest of 1083, we can only assume that the records were silent because, well, maybe he was exonerated by his king and sank into the shadows, letting those involved sort it out without him. 
but 1084 was a different story altogether. The next time we see Rodrigo Diaz, he's blazing a trail of utter destruction through the Christian kingdom of Aragon, alongside the Muslim ruler of Zaragoza. In five days, he left Aragon in shambles and stripped a good amount of wealth from it. He was then hired again by Al-Mutamin, the same king of Zaragoza, to go after a smaller Muslim taifa called Lerida, or Lerida, ruled by a man named Al-Hayib, and Al-Hayib's territory suffered terribly by the surprise attack. Rodrigo went on to ravage the tiny taifa of Tortosa, and then on to Morelo to do the same. By summer of 1084, Rodrigo Diaz had lived on the saddle in raid after raid, seemingly unstoppable. Fletcher said, quote, Sancho Ramirez of Aragon and Al-Hayib agreed to, joint, to a joint action against Zaragoza and invaded the kingdom, end quote. Rodrigo at the time wasn't far away from this joint invasionary force. Communications between both camps occurred. Fletcher adds, quote, which included a contemptuous message from Rodrigo to the Aragonese king, end quote. Because why not talk a little trash before a fight, right? And on August 14, 1084, in the words of the Historia Rodrigue, the battle was, quote, unquote, an overwhelming victory. But Fletcher states, quote, it was even more than that, end quote. Rodrigo broke their lines, chased each one down, riding them straight into chains, if not outright killing them. Among those captured alive, get this, among those captured alive were a number of very prominent men, including Bishop Ramon Damazio and Count Sancho Sanchez of Pamplona, who, who ironically was a man already linked closely with Garcia Odonez, and he was courting Odonez's daughter at the time of his capture by Rodrigo Diaz. Fletcher calls this guy, quote, one of the most powerful barons in Aragon until his death in about 1116, end quote. The Aragonese king's mayor domo and seven appointed military leaders in charge of the defense of specific areas of Aragon were all among those prisoners too. But even Fletcher highlights these next names Rodrigo Diaz captured at this important battle that, as far as I can tell, has yet to be given a name uh, because the best description of it is the date and that it was along the river Ebro. These guys were Count Nuno of Portugal, Anaya Suarez of Galicia, Gudisteo Gonzalez, Nuno Suarez of Leon, and Garcia Diaz of Castile. No relation to Rodrigo, by the way. Now remember, though maybe out of King Alfonso VI crosshairs, Rodrigo Diaz was still very much exiled from his homeland, so he's still out on his own. Though he, was he, though he was during the years of 1083 and 1084 firmly in the court and on the payroll of Zaragoza. Now with all that in mind, did you catch some of those place names that those guys were attached to? Portugal? Galicia? Castile? Yeah, Rodrigo had captured a handful of King Alfonso's own, own men. Intentionally or not, it brought shame to King Alfonso VI once again. And you can imagine the king's reaction to this news. Fletcher states, quote, By the end of 1084, Rodrigo must have cut a considerable figure at the court of Zaragoza. End quote. He had ingratiated himself quite a bit into Zaragoza's Al-Mutamid circle, 
But in the fall of 1084, Al-Mutamid died. Now, his son would take over and become just as, gen- as generous a benefactor as Al-Mutamid had been to Rodrigo. But it would be but for just one more year, as Rodrigo would be allowed back home and into the good graces of King Alfonso VI. Now, the 1080s in general are seen as a long shifting of the balance of power, once and for all, against Muslims in Iberia, but 1085 is probably the core of that sentiment. See, 1085 would see the last major taifa to fall into Christian hands, never to be returned to the Muslim community. Toledo. Toledo lies right smack in the middle of the peninsula and was the northernmost major city of Al-Andalus. Sure, Zaragoza and Valencia were pretty far north too, but nothing held the sway of owning the very center of the peninsula. And Toledo was an important city too. It It was still a center of commerce and philosophy, and it's said that Toledo was the main point of refuge back in the early 1030s for philosophers and jurists and poets and artists to flee to when Cordoba, a city now a shadow of its former self just 211 miles straight south, or 340 kilometers. In recent decades, Toledo had benefited greatly from this influx of business and culture, but beginning in 1080, its political landscape shifted. See, King Alfonso inserted himself as receiver of its parias and thus protector of its domain. He felt entitled to choose its ruler. This, of course, didn't sit well at all with the locals, but Alfonso insisted that their Muslim place in society would not be harmed in any way. Its former ruler, a man named Al-Qadir, was booted sometime earlier, by the locals, by the way, and Alfonso reinstated him as Toledo's king. Another bad move, right? And to boot, Al-Qadir was a man who held grudges. Always a good thing for a leader, right? And he immediately hunted those conspirators who worked against him before and murdered them outright, publicly. Fletcher states, quote, Ibn Bassam, writing in 1109, was to say of this period that the citizens of Toledo, quote, went in fear of their own shadows, end quote. In order to satisfy Alfonso's insatiable demands for money, Al-Qadir squeezed his subjects dry by the familiar techniques of extortion, end quote. Well, within a year or so, Al-Qadir had forced a revolt against him in the year of 1082, and Alfonso used the opportunity to fill its surrounding castles, not with Toledan troops and noblemen, but with his own Castilian troops and noblemen. He also demanded more money to pay for his troops' presence, thus sucking the Toledans even drier, and creating a sense of permanent Castilian occupation of Toledo by late 1082. So, propped up a puppet government, stirring up resentment in the local populace to the point of rebellion? Huh. Kind of sounds familiar here in the 2021st century. And these oppressed Toledans had nowhere to turn to either. Badajoz, Seville, Granada, Zaragoza, these were all taifas who were paying Parias to King Alfonso VI up north. Now to act against Alfonso's pawn in Toledo, regardless of how dire their circumstances, it would be an act of war against the king of Castile and Leon, which in the late 1080s was simply out of the question. These taifas just didn't have the power or 
even the influence to do something like that. So as Fletcher states pretty unequivocally, quote, Alfonso VI was now effectively in charge of the kingdom, that is of Toledo, end quote. See, there were very few pro-Al-Qadir supporters in and around Toledo. There were some moderates, but by early 1084, these were numbering in the handfuls, you could say. But I think it's pretty obvious that those opponents of such harsh rule grew to staggering proportions, and by 1084, these opponents didn't just oppose Al-Qadir, they dipped into extremism. Toledo was a powder keg. But see, Toledo was a really interesting place. The dynamics there, for reasons stated earlier, were similar to Cordoba. Muslims were undoubtedly the ruling class there, but there were still sparks of convivencia, and Toledans allowed Sephardic Jews and Mozarabic Christians to hold high offices and prominent community roles so long as they did not violate Islamic law. But ironically, when Alfonso propped up the very unpopular Al-Qadir, Jews and Christians in and around Toledo suddenly began to suffer. Like, a lot. For instance, Fletcher recounts an incident that probably turned the local Jewish population against Muslim rule in general. In 1082, Alfonso sent a delegation to the Taifa of Seville to collect parias. This delegation was led by a Jewish man with high standing in the Christian Castilian court. There was a disagreement in which the leader of Seville felt he was being cheated, and before anyone knew what sparked such a horrible reaction, this Jewish ambassador was crucified. Yeah, Seville brought back crucifixion. So not only were his own Muslims against him, but Christians always preferred a Christian ruler over any other, and now the Jews were looking askance at their Muslim rulers too. Al-Qadir knew the jig was up over the ensuing year, and like a cornered animal, he began lashing out wildly and secretly searching for a way out. He cut a deal with Alfonso to take Toledo but it had to look like he didn't just give it up. Alfonso gathered his forces, and he rode south with an agreement. Thus, the siege of Toledo began in late 1084 and lasted through the winter into 1085, but this winter, Fletcher says, quote, was severe. There was much rain, and heavy falls of snow in the Sierra de Guadarrama threatened Alfonso's supply lines, but he persisted, end quote. This was a tough thing to bear as the siege force, but to be a Toledan at the time was suffering on a grand scale. Starvation, disease, you know the routine in situations like this. Toledo agreed to terms, I say that in quotations by the way, because the terms were already made. Toledo agreed to terms of surrender on May 6th, 1085, and by May 25th, the same day, Fletcher adds, that Pope Gregory VII died, King Alfonso rides triumphantly into the city, the first Christian to do so in over 370 years, way back when it was still the capital of the Visigothic kingdom in the area. Upon the fall of Toledo that year, ripples spread out from central Iberia in all directions. I mean, it was a a giant Christian kerplunk echoed through the medieval world. On the Christian side of things, there was a subdued but enthusiastic, yes. However, on the Muslim side of things, there was a collective shiver. And Ibn Tashfin felt it too. Throughout Iberia and the Maghreb, Fletcher says, quote, 
the fall of Toledo sharpened the focus of discontent, end quote. But when you're dealing with religious types, it's less the political and more the whole, how should we say it, wrath of God kind of thing. Not much arguing with that, I suppose. Fletcher adds, quote, Was it not judgment from on high? An anonymous poet lamented the loss of Toledo. If we say punishment has reached them and rejection by God has come to them, then we, like them, and more than they, deviate, that is, from religion. And how can someone who deviates be safe? Can we be sure that vengeance will not fall upon us? When corruption has combined with license among us? Events in Toledo itself contributed to the mounting alarm in Andalusian society. End quote. The whole business in Toledo, after Alfonso VI rode triumphantly into town, wasn't finished yet. Alfonso promised that Muslims still maintained control and free use of Toledo's main mosque. That was a big one. And this was a key component to the terms of surrender. And from this, the next part of our story unfolds. Alfonso appointed a man named Cisnando Davides to run the affairs of the newest Christian Iberian city, that is Toledo. Cisnando Davides is a very interesting character in 11th century Iberia, as he was born in modern-day northern Portugal, stolen away and pressed into service of Seville's emir Al-Mutadid, and rose to prominence under the same man, Al-Mutadid, who ended up inviting the Almoravids to help out. He even was loaned out to Fernando I for some missions elsewhere, becoming a prominent Christian nobleman during the earliest years of the Reconquista. In fact, Fernando I eventually appointed him the governor of Coimbra in 1064, which places his appointment as governor of Toledo upon its conquest as mirroring his earlier career. Cisnando Davides had been in this position before. And the thing about Cisnando Davides was that he was held in pretty high esteem around Christian and Muslim Iberia. Not only had he been taught the intricacies and nuances of diplomacy under the tutelage of Porst Cordoba, Al-Andalus's preeminent emir in Seville, not only was he running errands and eventually participating in political and economic trade delegations between Christian and Muslim kingdoms, and not only was he then a member of Alfonso VI's diplomatic corps, namely as ambassador to Zaragoza three different times in the late 1070s and early 1080s, but he was also, before all of that, Cisnando Davides, he was raised in the schools of Cordoba. Yeah, those schools, those really good schools. Cisnando Davides was a stud in 11th century Iberia, and I just wonder how much brighter his star would be if it weren't for our protagonist of this season of the podcast. Fletcher states that Cisnando Davides already appeared in Rodrigo's story as the mitigator in an earlier dispute, and the two men, though maybe not friends per se, according to the records, well, they certainly weren't enemies either. But Cisnando Davides, Fletcher writes, quote, he was respected by Muslim authorities with whom he had dealings, such as Abd Allah of Granada, and the chronicler Ibn Bassam praised his shrewdness, tolerance, and regard for justice. End quote. So, I mean, naturally, who else would Alfonso send to Toledo to keep the dust settled for the time being? Well, at least until the actual dust settled. 
As Maria Rosa Menical wrote in her book, The Ornament of the World, about the Toledo of 1085, quote, The Toledo that Alfonso VI walked into and soon made into the new capital of his kingdom was already a vivacious place with a strong sense of its own cultural superiority, end quote. Now, she goes on to say of the fall of Toledo and its subsequent ascension of the venerable Cisnando Davides, a Christian, quote, precisely because Alfonso's formidable leadership was evident to all, and because of the obvious danger that Toledo, as a Christian capital, would rapidly succeed in reuniting the peninsula after nearly a hundred years of political chaos, near panic set in among the remaining Muslim taifas, end quote. Again, Fletcher states, I repeat, quote, the fall of Toledo sharpened the focus of discontent, end quote. And they were right to panic. And their discontent, it was real. But first, let's stay with Toledo in 1085 just a bit longer. See, Cisnando promoted a conciliatory policy, as Fletcher put it. But it, quote, was given little chance, end quote. A man named Bernard would saunter into town a few months later and have a very different outlook on things. And this is so important, I can't, I can't stress it enough. Toledo's main church needed new leadership in light of Alfonso's momentous change of the guard. And this Bernard was made its archbishop. Fletcher says the following about the man, quote, Bernard was a Frenchman, a monk of Cluny, who had been sent to Spain in about 1079 quite possibly in the entourage of, or at the request of Constance, niece of Abbot Hugh of Cluny, who married Alfonso VI in that same year. By May of 1080, Bernard had been made Abbot of Sahugan, an old and distinguished monastic house which enjoyed close ties with the royal family and had recently become, in effect, the head of the Cluniac network in Spain. From this position already one of eminence, he was promoted by the king to be, met, to be the Metropolitan Archbishop of Toledo and primate of the whole Spanish church, end quote. Now, it's worth noting a point made a few episodes ago, a point that I said to watch for in the coming episodes because of the ripples it would have on Iberia itself through the end of the 11th century and beyond. Bernard is a man who came to the peninsula more than a decade after Fernando I died. But Bernard is exactly the type of monk that Fernando's appeals to the monastery at Cluny in France all those years ago had set in motion to attract. Fletcher writes, quote, Bernard was forceful and energetic. His mind had been formed far from the lands where men such as Cisnando met and mingled with the Muslims. He grew up in that period when crusading ideas were slowly taking shape in, among other places, the monastery of Cluny, end quote. Okay, stop and think about this for a moment. Cisnando Davides was born in a co-mingled Iberia of Christians, Muslims, and Jews. He was raised in the schools that educated them all, walked the streets where he heard Arabic spoken in business and in cafes and among family members, and no doubt on his way to and from church services, Cisnando heard the call to prayer each day, echoed over the rooftops of the magnificent city of Cordoba. He spent time between the courts of Seville and Castile and Leon, 
and he traveled the busy thoroughfares of Iberian trade networks, passing all manner of folks. There was, in his estimation, reconciliation, and nothing more in a situation like governing Toledo after his historic fall. He knew no different. Now, Bernard, on the other hand, was born in France. He was sworn to Cluny and rose among its monastic order there. He was born around Christians. He walked the streets of Cluny where French was the only language spoken, maybe Latin, of course, and he attended church services that included almost the entire populace in whatever town or city he found himself in. He spent time in the halls of medieval academia and spoke to monks of like mind, never really having his beliefs challenged. In fact, it was just the opposite. In such echo chambers, one only digs further into the muck of their preconceived notions. And it's no wonder that in places like France and Germany and England that a crusading fervor began to simmer, fueled by stories coming out of the recently opened up Iberian Peninsula and the work happening in Sicily by Robert Giscard and his little brother Roger of de Hauteville. There was, in Bernard's estimation, only one course of action for Toledo. And reconciliation couldn't be further from it. Oh, and to add to this case against Archbishop Bernard of Toledo, as he would come to be known, Fletcher adds, quote, One of his fellow monks there was Odo of Châtillon, who later, as Pope Urban II, was to proclaim the First Crusade. End quote. See? This Bernard fella came into Iberia with these thoughts, no doubt Moldover for years, day in, day out, by his buddy Odo, who would one day do something about it. And that something would bring Cisnando's whole policy of conciliation toward the Muslims crashing down. See, with a crusading fervor, Archbishop Bernard blew into Toledo like a tornado and within months completed the change of Toledo's main mosque into a Catholic church. On December 18, 1086, this cathedral was consecrated and its charter stated that the building itself was, quote, once the abode of demons, end quote. And as Fletcher put it, quote, had now become a tabernacle of celestial virtue for all Christian people, end quote. Yeah, I mean, it, if those aren't fighting words, I just don't know what are. Now, one of Cisnando de Vida's, his terms when he became governor of Toledo was that he would continue allowing Muslims to use this main mosque as their central house of worship in the region. I mean, that was even backed up by, by King Alfonso VI when they first went in, part of his deal with, um, with Al-Qadir originally. But Bernard screwed that whole arrangement up. This no doubt stirred up a massive amount of emotions and religious zealotry on both sides, which is why when scholars look to these sources, they simply cannot be fully trusted. They're still quite valuable in that they, they show the anger and the enmity from Muslims and Christians toward each other, which can teach us a whole heck of a lot in terms of cultural tensions in the mid-1080s and how easy it was that these feelings rippled out in all directions away from Toledo. But as for accurate history, well, scholars tend to take these chronicles with a grain of salt. And this makes me wonder how scholars in the future will look at our own times, times defined by emotional and social and ideological upheaval, driven by deliberately misleading headlines, pointed accusations and half-truths, the ignoring of one side's faults in any given situation, and they're at the bottom driving a whole lot of it, 
online trolls who revel in stirring the pot and upvotes on Reddit. It's pathetic. Make no mistake, these sources from Toledo in the 1080s and even a few decades afterward were deliberate attempts to sway public opinion. Truth sometimes be damned. Around this time, however it played out, the respected elder statesman, Cisnando Davides, was replaced as governor of Toledo by a much more fundamentalist nobleman named Pedro Ansuras. Now, Fletcher states, quote, This change suggests that more was at stake there than the ambitions of an overzealous archbishop. There was a conflict of views about the proper policy of a Christian ruler toward the Muslims, which must have given rise to heated debates at court. 1086, it seems to have been the hardliners who gained the king's ear, end quote. But that's what was happening in the halls of nobility. These discussions and arguments and philosophical and political ideologies of how to rule these newly acquired Muslim states. And this is where I feel comfortable enough pointing to as evidence that Iberia, and not Jerusalem necessarily, was the epicenter of the coming crusades in the Holy Land. By the time Pope Urban II made his speeches around Europe about leading a a Christian force to reclaim the Holy Land for the Christians, Iberia had been having this conversation for decades already, peaking, arguably, in the Toledo situation of the mid-1080s. But what of everyone outside of the nobility? Fletcher writes, quote, The panic-stricken Andalusians could have known nothing of these divided councils. All they could see was a Christian government which could not be trusted to honor agreements, and the conversion of the Toledan mosque strengthened the hand of those who sought Almoravid intervention. End quote. Okay, so what of the Muslim nobility? What are they thinking? Well, they too were torn as to what to do. Some, like the Prince of Seville, were outwardly opposed to pulling in those mysterious Berbers with a rough reputation to cross the strait and lend assistance. Remember, this guy's dad, the Emir of Seville, had already aided them with a naval force during the Almoravid conquest of the African coast across the strait. This was a bold stance to take to, you know, speak out against this. And this Emir of Seville had already reached out to Ibn Tashfin about coming to Iberia to, to help rid them of those pesky Christians. But as Fletcher says, Andalusians were trapped. Submit to Christian rule and have more mosques, no doubt recreated as cathedrals? Or submit to aid from the Almoravids, knowing how that clan functions more like a warlike empire and less like a band of brothers who could offer assistance to their Muslim brethren before respectfully leaving afterward. Also, don't forget that Muslim-Christian relations, though never as strong as Muslim-Jewish relations in Iberia, were still nevertheless strong throughout Al-Andalus, very different than how this relationship was handled in Christian kingdoms to the north, and very, very different than how any of these relations were handled in the Maghreb. So a lot came from this siege and what became known famously as the Fall of Toledo. Not least of all that it was another traditional pin stuck in the timeline that many used to mark the beginning of the Reconquista. Yeah, I know, there's been a couple already. (laughs) No one can really decide. But one other thing to come of it was that Alfonso, well, he got a taste for expansion. Fletcher refers to his attitude now 
1085-1086 as a hawkish mood of militant expansionism. Pretty strong words. Now, in 1086, he used his army, that is, Alfonso used his army to install Al-Qadir in Valencia, which was a major piece of Al-Qadir's terms of abdication of Toledo. He publicly called out the leader of Seville, uh, this is Alfonso, publicly called out the leader of Seville to turn over his kingdom completely to Leon and Castile. Alfonso damn near took the capital of Granada with a lightning raid through its territory. And finally, Alfonso turned his sights on Zaragoza. But again, this was 1086, and who do we know was in the service of the Zaragozan king, Al-Musta'in? That's right, the now-living legend Rodrigo Diaz, El Campeón, El Cid, and Rodrigo no doubt led the Zaragozan opposition to Alfonso during this campaign, and a campaign there was. However, in a very short time, with very little blood or coins spilled on the siege of Zaragoza, word came of an event that flipped the table on, a, on the Iberian political and social and economic landscape. There was a truly massive army that arrived on the shores of southern Iberia, led by a mysterious figure named Yusuf ibn Tashfin. Now, we here on the podcast know about these people already and all the things that led them to this moment. But as far as many Iberians knew at the time, Muslims, Christians, Jews alike, the, though the knowledge of a large new movement in Africa was no secret, what these people looked, sounded, and fought like was a complete mystery to them. And the first sight of them struck fear in the hearts of many who saw them because what they saw were dark, sun-dried faces covered by a litham, a veil, and a headscarf, which had the menacing effect of highlighting severe squinted eyes. Fletcher says, quote, Yusuf's armies presented as great a threat to the settled cultures of the Western Mediterranean as did, at exactly the same time, the armies of the Seljuk Turks to those of the Eastern Mediterranean in Byzantine Asia Minor and Fatimid Syria. In both instances, the cultural divide between invaders and invaded was wide. Among the cultivated, cultivated princes of Al-Andalus, Yusuf was perceived as a barbarian. He came from beyond the pale of civilization, from, in Moroccan terms, the Bled Es Siba, or the lawless land beyond the Atlas. End quote. But again, Andalusians were in a real bind. Iberia had become a crucible for Islam, forced by its own governance over the preceding 80 years and the emergence of a vengeful Christian presence in the north. In the end, Fletcher writes, quote, Final negotiations were opened with the Almoravid leadership in the winter of 1085 to 1086. End quote. Thus, on the next episode, we will ride these negotiations into the later years of Rodrigo Diaz's life and find out how his story helps to develop the cataclysmic events of the Almoravid invasion of Iberia. Thank you for listening. Until next time.